How can the Bible become a harmful book? This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, here for part two of our conversation with Philip Yancey. If you listened to our previous episode, you heard that I wasn't able to join our team for this interview, but Paul and Glenn are in the middle of a great conversation with Philip about the Bible. In this episode, they talk more about Philip's upbringing and the role that scriptures played in either drawing him toward God or driving him away from God. There are many ways to be saturated in scripture, yet still read it poorly, and the results are oftentimes disastrous and heartbreaking. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the second part of this conversation with Philip Yancey. All right, Philip. So within this subculture that you grew up in, um, the Bible, of course, was was right there as as part of it. Um, going in, one might think that, you know, growing up in the Bible Belt, having lots of serious Bible teaching, which was definitely part of your story, you had all the makings of what what could have been a transformative encounter with the scriptures. But it seems that making mistakes with the Bible is a crucial issue in fundamentalism. So when did you become aware that maybe that, you know, some of the readings of the Bible that you were brought up with weren't really what the Bible was saying or trying to do? Um, And then secondly, there were a lot of people who, growing up in a similar situation, as you mentioned, end up turning away from faith and the Bible in particular um, because of the mistakes that they saw in the faith and particularly in the Bible. Uh, were you ever tempted to just chuck the Bible entirely? Um, how did you work that through? And um, yeah, just what's the role of the Bible in the midst of this bigger story of your life? Hmm. Yes, I was tempted to chuck the whole thing. and I did at least suspend it for several years in late high school years. You're right. I, I grew up saturated in the Bible. My mother was a full-time Bible teacher. Hmm. She couldn't afford babysitters, so I went with her every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and heard the same Bible story five times. Wow. You know? <laughs> and then next year, I'd hear wow. the same one. You know, so uh, it turned out to be huh. a, a valuable resource, but it just felt repetitive at the time. What what I learned is that if you get some things wrong, it can it can have tragic consequences. So the first thing, and then my book starts where the light failed, the memoir starts with, with this uh, scene of my father who was planning to be a missionary and had a whole string of people that he had converted, uh, led to Christ. And then he was struck with polio, was in an iron lung and lying there thinking, why, what good is this doing? I, I want to be serving God. And finally, the people who surrounded him, who were close to him, who were praying for him, planned to support him as a missionary, decided, well, this could be God's will for him to die. So I, he should be healed. Doesn't the Bible talk about healing? And, and they became so convinced that against all medical advice, they removed him from that iron lung. And he had, a, he had some progress over the next few days, but within two weeks, he died. And my whole life was lived under the shadow of, I called it earlier, a theological mm-hmm. error. They presumed prerogatives that aren't for us to, to presume. It was, 
it was uh, God only who has the right to decide about death and life. Mm-hmm. So that was one error mm. that gradually dawned on me. And uh, as the book tells, it, it was lived out in, in pretty uh, oppressive ways in our family. And then the second, the second area that really shook me was in the area of race. The churches I grew up in were blatantly racist. They would get up and joke about people like Martin Luther King Jr., who they would call Martin Lucifer Kuhn. I mean, just unbelievable stuff. And, and one church actually printed up mm. in, the, in the book mm. I reproduced this card that they gave out to any African-Americans who tried to enter the church saying, we know you're not serious. You're just a troublemaker. You're not a true child of God and didn't allow any African-Americans for some time. And later mm. in my high school years, through my own reading and through some exposure to African-Americans and minorities, and then particularly one, one scene at the Center for Disease Control where I was working, um, I realized that the church was wrong. The church had lied to me. And, and if they lied about race, maybe they were wrong about the Bible. Maybe they were wrong about Jesus. So that started that suspension period where I didn't know what to believe and, and was very suspicious of anything I was taught in church. But later, when I, when I look back on it, I realized that probably the worst thing that the church had done was misrepresent God. And in, in this case, actually, I, th- I think they got their image of God from the First Testament, from the Bible that Jesus read, because there's some fierce stuff in there, and there's a lot of talk about judgment, and people are pu- punished by, uh, by death, you know, when they do certain things. And I came away with this image of God as a, as a bully, just this powerful creature who goes around knocking people around. And I, I, ne- I never got to what Jesus brought coming out of that historical context. Jesus came with a message of love and grace and forgiveness. And uh, I guess if I had to summarize the whole Bible... I would say a good place to start is this, is the story of the prodigal son. It's God getting his family back. Mm. And the image of, of God that Jesus presents there is a father on the edge of his porch every day, scanning the horizon, looking, could this be the day that my son comes back? Could this be the day? And that's the image of God that I learned through Jesus and in, in so many ways. So those were... Uh, my faith didn't come easily. I had a lot to, to overcome. But uh, when in doubt, start with Jesus and work out from there because he came to show us what mm. God is like as, as well as to show us what we should be like. And I, I, I say to people who grow up in, um, in toxic churches particularly, I understand. In fact, my, my church is probably more toxic than yours. But it would be a bad trade to forfeit a relationship with the God of the universe because of the way some, some Christians treated you or, or um, said something that offended you. I, I use this, this phrase that my nephew sent me, found it on a, on a kind of like a Chinese fortune cookie or something. He said, an idea cannot be held responsible for those who believe it. 
And, mm, and what he's wow. really saying is, God, don't blame God for the <laughs> yeah. church. You know, uh, in fact, it was a, an amazing act of humility that God would turn over the whole mission to us. It's one thing for Jesus to represent God; it's another thing right. for the church to. But that was the plan from the beginning. Jesus said, "I, you know, I, my work is finished. It's up to you guys now." Bye, and left, <laughs> floated up into the right. sky, right. and these disciples. Disciples had not distinguished themselves with any, you know, any great signs of excellence, but uh, he, he trusted in, in, in the phrase, the body of Christ, which Paul keeps, keeps using, t- mm. describes what we are supposed to be. We're supposed to be the physical representation of what God is like, the body of Christ in the world. And right. when we don't right. do it very well, you create people like ex-evangelicals and people like the me when I was suspending my own faith. Mm. You know, Philip, your story just makes me think about um, the, the awesomeness, really, of human responsibility in, in God's story, in God's plan, that um, the Bible is there, right? It's a revelation from God. But just because it's there doesn't mean it, it works by magic. We have to do things with the Bible, and we're going to do things a certain way, and it matters how we use the Bible, how we teach it, mm. what, what we think it's talking about. Um, we can derail people just by misusing what is to be a gift to us from God. And kind of the same thing with the church, that the church doesn't work by magic. Just because there's a church yeah. of people who profess faith doesn't mean it's going to work by magic, right? That, that human responsibility is real, and we have to attend to what the Bible really is and what it's saying kind of, as you say, centered on the story of Jesus. And the church has to attend to what God is doing and what the Bible actually says, especially in the story of Jesus. And that without those things, if we're not serious about that responsibility, it seems like the whole project can kind of go go off the rails and actually hurt people badly. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. And, you know, other... Other faiths have more of a magical view of the Bible. So, Mm. for example, um, Muslims have told me they believe that the Quran existed from all eternity. It was it was dictated. It was exactly it was God speaking, dictated into through the prophet Muhammad. And uh, Mormon, I've, I've talked to Mormons, and of course they believe that the Book of Mormon. A lot of that came on plates of gold. You had to have special glasses and keys to understand it. And that's kind of the magical view of the Bible. And, and we often want our Bible to, to have that magical view. But it, it's clear to me that God trusted human personalities to work through these things. So as a writer, you know, I, <laughs> I, I like to go to the best writers in the Bible. <laughs> and I would pick uh, Isaiah is, is right up there. I mean, just beautiful <laughs> Poetry. You compare him to Amos, for example, who's just—he's still got manure on his boots. Came right off the fields, <laughs> right. you know, and right, he just right. blasted out there. <laughs> and James was a little bit like him in the in the New Testament, compared to Paul with his eloquence and mm. his his historical overview. The, the, always kept the big picture in mind. So I I, I, I love the fact that God trusted us in a sense trusted humanity mm. 
with the mission of getting across the message. Well, what is the message? You don't know the message apart from the Bible. And he even trusted the Bible and, and let human personality uh, bleed through all the way. And, and mm. I just love comparing one writer and another. I, I believe they're all part of inspiration, you know, and I, I listen to what they say, but it, it, it didn't get dictated by God. That's very clear. It got worked through, thrust through with fellow human beings who had very different emotional and, and intellectual makeups. Philip, I have to tell you that um, I think one of the reasons why um, Where the Light Fell was so meaningful to me was because, like you, I, um, I grew up south of the Mason-Dixon line. And <laughs> so I had my own, you know, set of issues. Uh, and I, I still remember when our family, uh, when I was in high school, moved up north and you know, we joined a church and I was part of a youth group. And I remember sharing with the group one night that it, that our church didn't believe in mixed bathing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they, uh, of course, they had they had no idea that, uh, you know, in the deep south, at least in the circles that I went, ran in and the camps that I went to, the, the guys swam separately from sure. the girls. And even though we were still swimming separately, the girls still had to wear a T-shirt you know, over, <laughs> over their, over their one piece bathing, bathing suit. And, yeah. um, and so the, the kids, of course, in my youth group got a, got a big kick out of that. They said, you know, we don't believe in mixed bathing either. Um, <laughs> but, but, but the part I, I, going back now and the part that makes me sad, um, is that, uh, you know, I was right in the thick of the, the Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm. I, remember clearly colored bathrooms and white bathrooms mm. and colored drinking fountains. And I had, uh, like in junior high, a couple of black friends that lived in an adjacent neighborhood and they took me to their school one day. And, you know, the, the, the playground equipment was all broken down and there wasn't a blade of grass anywhere. And, you know, their textbooks were third generation textbooks with the colors covers ripped off and everything. But as I thought about all that, and I remembered my church experience and we were in church at least four times a week. Um, mm -hmm. And I heard hundreds of sermons. I, I don't remember a single sermon yeah. on the issue of the inequities that were, were all around us. I remember, you know, so many sermons on worldliness you know, how many, how many things can you say about worldliness and how many passages of scripture are there? But that was, that was almost the exclusive, the exclusive focus. And so now, you know, at this stage of the game and, you know, with the Institute and so forth, we have come to identify that one of the reasons that we have this systemic problem is because we, we tend to cherry pick um, mm. the scriptures. Yeah. And uh, you said something this goes back, I don't know, about, I don't know, eight, nine years ago now. And I don't know if you remember it because we quote you in almost uh -huh. every presentation uh, that we make on, on our work and, and so forth. And it was in Denver. I think it was at a, a sushi restaurant. And we were talking about the systemic problem of reading the Bible in fragments. And you said, you know, I think you guys are soft peddling this. The reality is, is that the modern church created an entire culture around Bible McNuggets <laughs> and assumed, assumed they were nutritious. 
<laughs> and um, again, we use that. And I always get, you know, we usually get a laugh. Uh, but I find that to be looking back kind of haunting now, uh, especially mm. the phrase that the modern church created an entire culture of Bible McNuggets. So we created a culture of, uh, of misreading the Bible. And um, so we're grateful for that. And, um, and you, you alluded to something, and I want you to speak to this a second, because you, you actually twisted this a little bit, and you talked about the fact that you had kind of the same kind of awakening that we do with Shakespeare, what mm. we do with the Bible. You know, we think we know Shakespeare because we know, you know, to be or not to be. That's the question. Right. So you did something, kind of a parallel experience with Shakespeare that we think, you know, needs to be implemented on the Bible side. Talk about that. Hmm. Yes. When I was in high school, of course, back then, I hope it still happens. We read three or four of Shakespeare's plays and there we had a teacher to guide us. And I realized after I got out, I had seen a couple here and there, but I had never actually read Shakespeare's plays before. So <laughs> I, I got a, a book. It had the original text, but it also had some footnotes explaining things. And one night a week, I think there were 27 plays, one night a week, I would um, devote it to reading a play by Shakespeare. And it took me a few weeks to get into it. I, I found myself spending too much time looking down at the footnotes. and But after about three or four weeks, some of the strange language wasn't so strange anymore. I was used to it, and, and I could just read it without looking at all these notes and being distracted. And I think uh, a lot of people have the same experience when they start reading the Bible. You know, at first, they just they feel lost. They don't know why they're reading it and how it relates to anything else. I, I've got to tell you, uh, Paul, because you were part of this as well when you were working with Bibles at Zondervan. Um, as you know, I worked on the student Bible and for three years was paid uh, to go through and read and study every word of the Bible. It was, I mean, I still rely on things that I learned there and then try to do an introduction to the Bible for people who really didn't want a thousand page study Bible. They just wanted some helps, you know, some normal helps in trying to figure out what it's all about. And that was a formative time for me that I've relied on ever since. I think the very next project after that was the book Disappointment with God. And I tell the story of going away, my first real trip to Colorado, where it was in the in the snow season in February. And I brought along a whole suitcase full of books and I got snowed in. So I couldn't ski or do anything fun. I just had to, I couldn't get out of my driveway. <laughs> and I, I only read one book. I read the Bible. I read it all the way through in two weeks. That's the only book I read. Wow. And I started by trying to figure out why is it that God, why is it that God sometimes seems to act real dramatically like the 10 plagues of Egypt? And then sometimes if you read just before that, for a couple hundred years, there was no word from the Lord at all. And, it, you know, why were these pulses of God intervening and then sometimes periods of silence? So I started by going through and just looking for every appearance of the word God. And then I thought, you know, it'd be easier just to read this whole book. <laughs> so I did. 
And and I got I got the big picture. I got the broad sweep. And th- th- I I got that passionate story of um a planet that was good. Again and again God said it is good and good and then when he created humans he said and it's very good, you know, very good. God created the planet he wanted. And then only as far as chapter three <laughs> did it start falling apart. Right. They they disobeyed and and the entire rest of that book from Genesis three on is God's very slow, painfully slow rescue plan to put it back together. To put what back together? Well, to put the planet back together. We're told that he will restore the planet to solve these problems like suffering and things mm. that we deal with. And and to res- but primarily to restore that broken relationship with human beings. Uh, that's what this, the story of the Bible is, God getting his family back. And I, that came so clearly when I had nothing to think about, nothing to do <laughs> but read the entire Bible. Um, and, and you don't get that from having a little plaque on the wall that has one, one sentence taken from the Bible. <laughs> right. That's what I meant by the chicken McNuggets. Because you go into Christian bookstores and, and you can get t-shirts, you can get all sorts of things that have those one-liners. Mm. And as I mentioned about Proverbs, you can take any one of the Proverbs out of context and, and say, well, well, that's not true. Look at Solomon and, and just throw it away. But you have to understand why it's there and what, what the authors are trying to accomplish in that book. And I, I sometimes think, because I've written 25 books now, I sometimes think, and have done this, where I'll just open my book to page 132 and stick my finger down and look at that sentence. <laughs> and half of the time, it makes no sense at all. <laughs> but that's, that's what so many people do with the Bible. Right, you know, right. They just open it up, stick their finger down, and that, that's the sentence. And sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't work at all. You really need that big picture. So, Philip, toward the end of your memoir, um, you kind of are summing things up. Like, what's, what's the takeaway from this whole story, the story of your life? And you, you mentioned that you think it comes down to two big things. Um, one is the question of suffering, the place of suffering, and the second one is um, the reality of grace, that um, that grace is in the story, even in the hardest parts. So I was wondering if you could just say a word about how you see those two big things, suffering and grace, kind of, um, how do they relate to the story of the Bible? Is Would you say that there's a kind of a connection between your life story mm. And what happens in the story of the scriptures overall? Well, I've never thought of that parallel before. Um, but suffering certainly appears all the way through the Bible. Of course, many people would say the oldest story in the Bible is the book of Job. We're not quite sure when it was written, but it was probably passed around as an oral story for maybe centuries before anybody wrote it down. And uh, has any story on suffering? ever captured the, the dilemma and the issues mm. better than Job. Um, 
So the Bible is very honest about suffering, uh, unlike, say, Buddhism, where it's explained away, or Hinduism, where it's, it's, it's explained very clearly as a result of previous behavior in a previous life. The Bible maintains that mystery. So Job is satisfied because he has a direct personal visit by God. And if, if one of us had one of those, we would never question again, because Job <laughs> didn't. It just silences questions like that. But mm. most people don't get that kind of theophany that, that Job got. So uh, what strikes me about suffering is, is that, first, it's not God's desire. Clearly it's not. And we know that because God gave us a face. Again, start with Jesus. And Jesus went around whenever he was in the presence of suffering. He, he got rid of it. He solved it. He never said, well, you just got to get used to it. This is a broken planet. He said, oh, do you want to be healed? Okay, I'll heal you. And yet he didn't, quote, solve the problem of pain. In fact, sometimes Jesus would say, okay, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm going to row across the lake and spend some time in prayer. And, and left behind people who had human needs. Mm. So, so he, he wanted people to be well, but that's not why he came to earth. He didn't come to earth to solve the problem of pain. If he, if he did, he would have waved a magic wand and say, okay, all the people with leprosy over here, all the people who have trouble walking over here. And he didn't do that. We're, we're left with, with these questions of the unfairness of it. Some people seem cursed by one disease, one condition after another, and some people seem to get by almost scot-free. So we're left with that mystery, but it's, it's there. And we, we have the promise that, that, as Jesus said, I want you to pray that the Father's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And part of that is health. And part of that is life. And he promises us that the planet will be restored one day. But God had a long and painfully slow plan to get that restoration, and it cost God greatly. It cost the death of his son. It, it cost the crucifixion. So um, I remember a, a great missionary, mm. E. Stanley Jones, who lived for many years in India, and he said, uh, Hinduism... Uh, solves the problem of suffering. It, it answers the questions. Why did they happen? Well, they happened because of something you did in a former life. Who, who can refute that, you know? <laughs> um, but it doesn't help. In fact, if you go to India and try to help people, they say, well, don't do that. You're going to make it worse for them in the next life. They're being mm. punished for the previous mm. life. So don't give alms to, the, to those with leprosy, to the dying. And he said, uh, Hindu, so Hinduism answers all the questions, but doesn't really offer help. Christianity doesn't really answer the questions, but it does offer help. Mm. And we're to be like Jesus. We're to be mm. like, mm. like uh, as Paul says, representing the God of all comfort, the Father of compassion. How will, God, how will people get to know what, that God does care? Well, through us. And the church has actually done a pretty good job over the centuries. Everywhere I go where there's been a Christian trail, you see clinics and orphanages mm. and, and uh, hospitals and things like that. So the suffering, I, I felt like I was going through a lot of it, and many times I wanted God to rescue me. And God doesn't often rescue the people who thought he would 
God would rescue my father were wrong. And mm. he died as a mm. result of that. We have to get these things right. We, there's, there is mystery involved. There's unfairness involved, no doubt. The, body, the Bible and, and God are both honest about that. And then grace. Um, I didn't experience much grace going up, as Paul was saying about his upbringing. <laughs> um, we, Christians today are often defined as a political lobby group. <laughs> you know, if you ask somebody in New York, what is an evangelical Christian? Oh, they're this kind of political group. And that wasn't true when I was growing up. Our church wasn't into politics. We were into being different from the people around mm. us. And that worldliness was, was the way. When in doubt, don't do it. So <laughs> you know, don't go bowling because they might serve alcohol in the bowling alley. And don't go roller skating because people might think you're dancing. You know? <laughs> and we were defined... We were defined by how things we didn't do, you know, rather than things we did do. Wow. And, and we had all these rules, and it, as that happened among the Pharisees that Jesus was so harsh on, what happens is you start thinking you're better. You compare yourself to everybody else, and you think, oh, well, I'm better because they go bowling. I don't go bowling, so I'm more spiritual than they are. And meanwhile, as Jesus said about the Pharisees, you tithe your kitchen spices your salt and pepper and oregano, <laughs> but you ignore the great issues of justice and injustice out there. You know, you're missing the whole point mm. by dealing with these picky little things. And, uh, and, and what I missed, again, to repeat, what I missed most was that view of God as, I would say, the prodigal father, prodigal with grace, just giving it away. Uh, it's not something that you can get by definition, you don't get it by earning it. We, none of us deserve God's love. None of us deserve God's grace. But it's a free gift. And the only way you can receive a gift is to have your hands open. If you have your hands closed, it falls to the ground. And so many Pharisees in Jesus' day were, had their hands closed tight in a fist because they wanted to cling to their goodness. And, God, and grace fell to the ground unreceived. Um, the... The thing I learned about grace is that the, the heart of the universe is not a it's not a frown, it's a smile. Love is at the heart of the universe, mm -hmm. and and the story of the Bible is the story of the extent to which God will go to express that love. Mm. First, by creating us, taking a gamble on human freedom, and then when when we disobeyed, the great descent, just that long, painstakingly, painstaking process to build a nation to show this is not the answer. In fact, how, how narrow to think that God only cares about these particular Jewish people. No, no. They were just the messenger to bring the light mm. to the Gentiles. They were the messenger to prepare for Jesus mm -hmm. and then to get ready to let the whole thing affect the entire world. And that's, that's what we're called to do. We're part of that great master plan that the Bible spells out so well. Mm. Philip, thank you uh, for, for being with us. And uh, thank you for these two books. Thank you especially for um, this recent Where the Light Fell and um, for sharing the harsh realities of the fractures in the relationships 
that you uh, experienced. And I think it, it's going to be, in a strange way, a comforting book mm-hmm. for people to, uh, to read this. I think we're facing a pandemic of relational fact, uh, fractures. And almost everybody I know has a story right now about a fracture in their church or in their family. I was thinking about this the other day. If these were physical fractures, I think almost everybody would be walking around wearing a cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we keep them, we keep them well hidden. Uh, and we continue to believe here at the Institute that um, part of the healing for these fractures is a better reading of the Bible. And so thank you for joining us to have that conversation. Thank you for being uh, on our board of advisors mm. for uh, Amen. your support in helping us issue this disrupt, uh, disruptive invitation uh, about the Bible and, uh, and what it means to read the Bible mm. well. So thank you and, uh, and blessings. Thanks, Paul. And I, I want to clarify one thing because I, I was joking about growing up kind of saturated by the Bible. Uh, years later, I got a survey from a group called Fundamentalists Anonymous or something like that. And I filled out this survey about all the things that were wounds and all the things that may have been helpful. And and later looking back, as I did that survey, I realized I'm very grateful for all, for that biblical upbringing. I, I wasn't at the time, but it, it those stories, the realities seeped in. Mm. And I learned the discipline uh, of deep reading. I learned that things we believe in life matter. It, it's not just an arbitrary choice. Mm. It matters. It has eternal consequences. And, and later, we've talked about where the light fell, which comes from a, a statement by St. Augustine. He said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could mm. look at where the light fell. And that's how I felt. I, I had been scorched by the sun. I had been... You know, that bully God, mm. I couldn't, couldn't, would, wouldn't look at the sun, but I could look on where the light fell and I identify the process of how that happened in my own life. And, I, and that's, part of the, that's part of the redemption process. Like Dallas Willard said, for those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. And my story is a story, not of rejection, but a story of redemption, thanks to the grace of God. Thanks to the grace of God, indeed. Well, I'm kicking myself that I wasn't able to join this conversation with Philip, whose life is such a testimony to grace and the power of God as told through the story of scripture. So thank you again, Philip, for joining us on The Bible Reset. This episode is brought to you by Changemakers, which is our community of donors who have pledged monthly gifts of any amount to help us change the way the world reads the Bible. If you've been thinking about joining Changemakers, now is a great time because a generous donor has actually offered to match a year's worth of donations from Changemakers, who sign up between now and December 31st. So if you're interested in joining Changemakers, you can head over to instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers to learn more and sign up there. That's going to do it for this episode. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.